everyone. First off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with American Anthropological Association and coming to you from ANU campus. I'm your familiar stranger today, Ronan, together with my familiar stranger, Alex. Hello. Irina. Hi. And Andy. Hi. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. So Alex, what are you thinking about this way? Yeah, so I am potentially about to leave Canberra, which is very sad. And the th- I know, right? Oh, um, we're going to miss you. We're all going to miss you. Oh, there's a lot of love here right now. Um, but one of the things I'm going to miss most about Canberra is the bushwalking. Oh, so as a foreigner, can you explain bushwalking for me first? <laughs> why it's bushwalking? I vaguely have You're the right. idea it's hiking. It's hiking. Why bushwalking? Come on. Because we couldn't just use somebody else's word for it. Oh. <laughs> I know. That'd be very un It has to be unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what it got me thinking about is that hiking for the international audience. Hiking has really exploded in my field site in Ecuador. People have walked since forever, so it's not as if walking is a new thing. But nevertheless, it's had a real explosion over the last 5, 10, 15 years, particularly with the locals. Hiking seen as a very foreign thing, particularly if Ecuadorians were doing it, it was a very elite thing. Mm-hmm. But more and more in the times that I've been going there and back, it's become much more of a middle class sort of thing. It's become more accessible, but also Ecuadorians are just taking more of an interest in it, which on the one hand is really exciting, but it also makes me think about identity and what this practice means. Apart from just being fun, what's the significance of hiking? Or do you think, Andy? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so you've seen the emergence of hiking as a culture in Ecuador. What do you think's kind of driving that emergence and like what are the characteristics of the typical Ecuadorian hiker? Yeah, good question. I should say, I say Ecuador because that's where I've been. I get the impression it's much more South America, Latin America. What I'd say is that a couple of things. For locals, the price and access to a lot of the equipment has been coming down. So I think there are just some practical accessibility issues. At the same time, I think there's, in Ecuador's case, a real rethinking of what it means to be middle class. Mm. And so previous markers of middle class that were around owning a home, owning a car, I could go on about this for ages. Some are becoming harder to get. Some of them are easier to get. And now there's much more of a focus on leisure and particular types of leisure. I think the fact that Ecuador has been a destination for foreigners doing hiking for a long time, but I think that has also generated a new interest. And I'm not quite sure why if foreigners have been coming to Ecuador for ages and hiking, it's only really had a big influence in the last 10 or so years. That is the little bit I can't explain, and maybe it's related to just the price of equipment. But I think there's more something else going on about class there. Something about ideas of environmental concerns, like we're getting more in touch with nature. You were saying that like hiking's kind of emerged as a bit of a marker of middle-class status, potentially, and like maybe kind of like riding on the tailcoat, um, fairly affluent 
international travelers, I assume, like probably coming mostly from like, say, Europe and North America, biking in South America, I'm riding on the coattails of these people of like sense of affluence. But walking has just always been this sort of primary mode of transport for all kinds of daily activities. Have you seen hike like displacing walking for other purposes? I mean, this sounds like a bit of an absurd thing. Displaced walking. I don't walk anymore. I hike. (laughs) That's right. Have you noticed that certain areas have been kind of co-opted for like leisure-based hiking, and instead pushed out farmers or people who use otherwise uh, attractive hiking landscapes for other purposes? Now, that's a good question. The use of landscapes is interesting. I have a little bit of anecdotal data of a community where they intentionally stopped logging and went through a real process of reforestation. And they really courted initially international tourists to cover the loss of income from the loss of logging and then as of talking to them that they started to get more Ecuadorian tourists. But that's only one data point. But they did note that change. They didn't exactly have an explanation for it. They just sort of said, oh, now Ecuadorians are doing this more, Mm. was their explanation. So that's one, but it wasn't the hiking pushing it out. It was very much agentive. So it was like deliberate shift towards this emerging phenomenon, like this sort of leisure mark starting to come out in Ecuador. Absolutely. I also knew a lot of small townships that were trying to create hikes. They were like, oh, we've got some nice forests near us. This seems like an easy way to get tourists. It seems also planned. I haven't heard of any any of it displacing local practices, but at the same time, it, it wasn't my specific research subject, so I can't rule it out. I think there might be some connection between the people in middle class and their use of technologies. Mm-hmm. You know how modern life is just permeated with all this technology. We like have phones, we have TVs, we have computers. At the touch of our fingers, we can just watch videos about everywhere in the world. And so I feel like this might be some connection of how people who kind of are saturated with this digital technology want to reconnect with nature and the reality of the outside world. And that's why they may feel like they would like to travel and actually walk the road uh, instead of just looking at the pictures on the screen, that they can experience some places and not these beautiful big tourist destinations where everyone is just tired of already. No one wants to go and take a picture next to an Eiffel Tower, but people would like to walk these tiny little streets somewhere in rural France, for example. You see, I can definitely see some connection there between like this middle class with their like ability to afford using a lot of technologies, feel saturated by it and wanted to reconnect with the real experience. Going hiking is definitely a middle class thing because a lot of new rich or new affluent, they're still like taking going to like Eiffel Tower as the primary choice of going traveling because they need to show, not they, including me, myself sometimes, I need to show I've been there, I've done that, especially on social media. Yeah, Yeah. but maybe after you did that... You kind of run out of places where else. I mean, you already have a picture next to an Eiffel Tower, next to a London Bridge. And then maybe after that, you will be considering more, you know, niche entertainment activities outdoors. Can I also throw another idea out there? That it could also be, I think you're onto something, but it could for some people, particularly in Ecuador, that's far and it's really expensive to travel from. The flight industry in South America is insane. It could be the inverse. They can't go to the Eiffel Tower. Travel to the US is really cheap from Ecuador, but that's about it. Getting to Europe from Ecuador traditionally has been really expensive. So I wonder if, like you say, they're recreating those images that they see on social media, but it's hard for them to get to the Eiffel Tower. But by God, Ecuador is a beautiful country and they can definitely take some beautiful photos of mountains and volcanoes and Incan ruins and all that sorts of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And which reminds me my experience in the past two years in China. Because the border was closed, people can't really get out of the country and they have to have some way to have fun. Internal traveling seems like a choice. Then in that case, places like the west part of China with more natures become more popular tourist destination. Tourism then it goes up again, become more outdoorsy compared to before. Big outdoor activities like trekking or hiking became the popular choice. And also because like these people who could afford to go traveling, in a way more or less have some spare money in hands that they could spend on leisure. The hiking or bushwalking in Australian term is becoming a new trend for middle class. Something you said before, Irina, I think plays into what I was thinking about in terms of bushwalking in Australia, that we're much more as affluent, typically like mostly in Australia, like white middle class, are saturated with a lot of technology. And so like reconnecting with nature, like it's a conscious act, right? Not being an expert on the subject, not having like researched it, but in Australia, definitely you can see prior to colonization, there was lots of trade routes and other paths that Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders were using for navigating the landscape. After invasion, and colonization of Australia, a lot of those pathways were co-opted by Europeans. And so these then became like important access routes for workers and just shifting between newly colonized settlements. And, and then these have kind of like gradually evolved into, in some cases, like roads and highways and whatnot, just continually being transformed and updated as predominant white or non-Indigenous part of Australian population becomes like more and more affluent. So then that's translating into this, well, you know, we want to like consciously go back and connect with nature. And in some cases, it's even this kind of desire to sort of like reconnect with a bit of an indigenous past in sort of doing that. So a couple of examples that come to mind is a uh, hiking trail in the Northern Territory that I actually did last year. Uh, it's very popular in the Northern Territory. A friend of mine called it like the Eat, Pray, Love of the Northern Territory. It's like, <laughs> it's like doing this trail. It's, it's called the Jatbulla Trail. And it's just outside of the town of Catherine. It's in a national park called Nitmaluk National Park. And the trail is named after a traditional owner from the area, Peter Jatbulla who was kind of instrumental working with national parks in the Northern Territory to have this kind of like trail established. And this trail is follows closely like a pathway that he and his family and other Aboriginal families from the area used in sort of like moving through the landscape. And so that's kind of like a big thing that I've heard when I was doing the Jatbulla Trail, other walkers on the walk really kind of concerned with that. That like, oh, you know, like we're connecting with nature, like it's this incredible landscape. Uh, and we're like really sort of, in, you know, like we're getting in touch with like the way Aboriginal people kind of like lived on the land is, is kind of like becoming part of it but I guess you know like as always is not far from mind in Australia Aboriginal people had to be like dispossessed of their land like completely displaced from that landscape and now this kind of like commodified version of reconnecting with that imagined past I suppose. So I think it's not only an Australian thing. I was doing my fieldwork in Tibet. Uh, it is kind of like tradition for Tibetans to circuit ambulance uh, temples or like walk from their hometown, the villages to Lhasa to worship. In, the, in recent years, this kind of hiking became more a touristy thing. I remember in 2019, when I was doing my fieldwork, I actually went to... Mount class to do the pilgrimage. Uh, it was like a two days hike of 55 kilometers long and the altitude is like above sea level around 4,000 meters high. So it was like really hard hiking, but still you see a lot of people go from everywhere within China do the pilgrimage. Majorities are Tibetan, but still some Han Chinese, some people travel from India to join the hiking. 
I feel like the connection of middle class spiritual pursuit of how to reconnect with nature, how to reconnect with the mind, how to be mindfulness is kind of like the driven incentive for activities like this. I think. This could be related to the way how middle class people kind of tend to pursue the healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Just like just overall, just like being healthy, being organic, all this just like eating clean, all these trends. I think they all go together with this like spending time outdoors because, you know, like you need to get some vitamin D, you need to get your exercises, you need to breathe fresh air. It seems like people really do this very mindfully, as you mentioned before. No, and I think that's a, that's kind of a good point. Uh, I'm not overly familiar with it, but there's been a lot of work done in anthropology looking at, in a sort of a similar way, like the intersection of those kind of politics, you know, like this kind of concern with health and well-being, which sometimes like also extends to at least a generic symbolic kind of environmentalism at times as well, right? This kind of concern for the being green and like being environmentally friendly. I always make sure I have the latest electric vehicle <laughs> exactly right yeah yeah you know you've got like your iphone 13 you eat like organic kind of food and you've got the latest electric vehicle and you go to the local farmer's market like that whole kind of thing but then also this yeah like this demand for like outdoor like leisure activities of a particular kind i love to keep talking about that it sounds so fun but time is up so what are you thinking about this week edina I think we just talked about a lot of different countries and communities and all of us anthropologists are doing research in many different parts of the world where we might not be from. And this all made me think about what identity is and how we identify ourselves. Did you ever wonder what is identity? How is it that we kind of have this way to distinguish almost instinctively what is these lines that divide us or these circles which unite us? For example, what makes us us and them them what do you think about it? big huge big. question <laughs> i might just jump in here because yeah, i ahead. think like irina that's like a great question uh it's like very broad so there's like so much ground that we could kind of cover on that but in a nutshell i think that's like one of the kind of driving issues behind my research project here at ANU, where I'm wanting to go back to an Aboriginal community in Central Australia, where I'd been working for a number of years prior to coming to ANU. And I'm wanting to kind of explore from their perspective, like how they think about white people and like non-Aboriginal people, but sort of specifically like kind of white people. They use a, a term commonly in, in various forms of Aboriginal English in Central Australia, white fellas, which gets kind of applied to lots of different sort of non-Aboriginal people. Uh, and so I kind of want to look at that from their perspective as a bit of a different take on you know the, the kind of standard form of positionality that we're used to in anthropology where we sort of like stand and declare who we are like according to these sort of like set categories you know like place class gender you know these days more commonly like sexual orientation theoretical orientation all these kinds of things I think that's important there's a place for that but I wanted to go kind of like another step and sort of like explore identity like from the other from the other side, like sort of looking back. Well, I love that yours is the most postmodern way. It's like, it's my perspective on their perspective on my perspective. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and, you know, like it's all like very, very, very like relative and like relational. And yeah, so that that's kind of like one of the main, main sort of things that I'm interested in and how that sort of like critical perspective on my perspective on their perspective on my perspective uh, influences you sort what of you like write. exactly <laughs> what influences what i write but influences these sort of like important intercultural politics and like racial politics in australia and also it's about knowledge production i say 
It's like whole whole these perspectives on perspectives on perspectives. It's kind of like informs a new knowledge production. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think that's like probably a, a sort of an ancillary aspect of it as well, right? Is is taking uh, this idea of positionality and this kind of like critical perspective on who we are as researchers, but not just for me. Not you know, I'm a, I'm white Australian uh, from a small country town, so not just me as an anthropologist, but also me as a white Australian male, uh, like in these. So there's like a kind of a you know, like multi layers to this sort of like critical perspective and positionality. But yeah, like going, going that like step further from rather than just like sort of standing and declaring kind of who I am. And then everyone's like, oh, okay, great. Like we know where you stand. Right. But actually like seeing someone else's kind of like take on that and how that affects our uh, relationships in sort of like an everyday sense, but also this like broader, you know, like national political uh, even like kind of cosmological, like metaphysical level, like how are we sort of like bumping up against each other? When we talk about identity, your way of looking at it as this very postmodern, very subjective and self-aware perspective is the, I think, the correct one because it's just all very subjective, how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people. I don't think it ever exists in this objectivity. So, because, you know, identities are very fluid and they have so many layers as well, because technically there is an unlimited amount of identities one person can hold. We can hold um, an identity of being, for example, Australian or being Chinese or being from Ecuador. We can also at the same time be vegans. We can also at the same time distinguish ourselves in the ways of our sexual orientation or maybe in our religion. And these kind of things, they just come layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Other people may treat you differently because of these sort of different layers of identity that you have. I do have a question here. Is identity about categorization? I think it is. I think identity is about categorization, but in this very simple way, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Because it kind of distinguishes us from them, and it seems to be one of the major basic things humans do as species, really. Like to distinguish my group from the other group mm -hmm. to distinguish my family from the other family kind of this sort of thing i'm thinking now you're really scratching the bounds of my old school anthropological knowledge i think there are those who would say that version of identity is categorization is a bit of a western construct and related to western ways of knowing and understanding particularly scientific rationalism we must categorize the world into categories to know it and bring everything under the understanding of man being a white french man from the 1700s or perhaps white englishman from the 1700s i do wonder this and i can't say it confidently because it's not my area of specialization but i do know some various ideas of particularly melanesianists so work by uh, strathern on the idea of the individual that you're not just a singular person you're kind of a composite of the people who are influence you and a part of your life and that you can also kind of be divided and the things you interact with are kind of a part of you but can also be stripped off and shared with other people if anyone knows strathern better than me feel free to jump in and correct me but i do believe that actually a large part of her reasoning was to critique some of our understanding of knowing and how we understand individuals and by extension identity. Mm. I mean, look, if identity would be 
so easy to pinpoint as to a Suzanne sentence. I don't think anthropology would exist as a science, you know. Oh, <laughs> that's that. Yeah, that's exactly the thing, because everyone would think differently about this and about what categories mean. And in every society, in every culture, in every family, there will be some different opinions on what it is. And I think this is the beauty of social sciences, and this is the beauty of studying anthropology. A lot of us, we are not really from this community that we study from. A wonder arena. What makes you start to do your research? Yeah, uh, well, my research also relates to indigenous Australian people. I find this field particularly interesting to me because I kind of share this a little bit sort of unique way how I position myself as a researcher to my participants because I am also an indigenous, just not from Australia. So I'm an indigenous person from Siberia. And uh, the topic of researching how indigenous people express their identity in the modern world through contemporary means of expressing their identity is my topic of interest. That's really interesting. I do want to ask, though, how do you position your indigeneity in relation to Australian indigeneity? After all, do you see yourself as belonging to the same community? Do you get the impression that Indigenous Australians see you as belonging to a sharing a part of your identity? I believe in the idea of international sense of community of all Indigenous nations. So I believe that if you share this Indigenous mentality, you see the world a little bit differently. You see it much more personally and much closer connected to the ideas of family. And for this reason, I can relate much more to my participants yeah, when they talk about how important it is for them to include their own family in the production of their art, for example. I can understand that because my culture is very similar to that. And I believe that many indigenous cultures around the world who have family connections as one of their core values would understand this. For this reason, it kind of creates this sense of shared understanding between me and my participants when we talk about family and art and any other subject which are important for them, because oftentimes they are important for me as well. Since we're all practitioners and learners, for me, positionality is always about taking sides. Since we're not from the community we study with, we have to take sides of either being us or being with them. But that's getting at one of the core dilemmas of anthropology, at least since the middle of the 20th century, with a lot of theorists writing about to what extent do we take the side of our interlocutors. And I think most modern anthropologists come down on the side of we undoubtedly do. But of course, it has these questions of then what does that mean for the knowledge we generate? As regular listeners to this podcast know, I dealt with Ecuadorian bureaucrats. But let's say I dealt with indigenous Ecuadorians. If I am on record as saying I am taking their side, I am being absolutely politically activist in their favour, then anyone who doubts or has different opinions, why should they believe anything that I say? I know objectivity is something we like to critique a lot, but we do have to ask ourselves, why should a wider audience believe what I have to say? Or if I'm explicitly being activist, am I just preaching to the choir? So I just wanted to say, like, quickly, I think, Alex, I think that's like a good point, right? That in a lot of ways, uh, this sort of like very strong current in anthropology uh, with a sort of like an activist kind of bend, uh, and positionality is like part of the discourse that's kind of come out of that, um, you know, like much more kind of closely identifying with our uh, like f fieldwork interlocutors or, you know, like however we want to kind of refer to them, uh, identifying with their kind of politics, like their sort of position on, on certain issues. 
has become like, you know, amongst most anthropologists, like fairly sort of standard. But to take a different kind of perspective, uh, it's often still like kind of, I think, uh, conceptualizing this sort of binary, right? Like if you're not identifying with your research participants, if you're not kind of like taking their side to a greater or lesser extent, then you're sort of like, you know, there's this lack of intimacy. There's like a lack of care. Uh, you're this sort of like disinterested and like kind of distant, you know, this old school kind of anthropologist that we love to kind of critique, you know, this sort of straw man of Malinovsky and Radcliffe Brown and others and others and so on and so forth. Uh, but interestingly, there's been some research just published in the last couple of years. Mate Kandaya from Cambridge has like edited a book on exactly that kind of topic, right? Like trying to get away from the idea that having some distance from your research participants therefore is necessarily like a kind of a moral inversion that you're you know you don't care about them this is like you know kind of exploitative sort of research it's unethical research it's not like properly politically informed research and so I think there's like a lot of scope for maybe like opening that subject up again like getting away from I think none of us wants to go back to do kind of like Radcliffe Brownian or you know like E.E. Evans Pritchard. Where do you even buy a pith helmet these days? Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like even if you had that inclination, you can't go back to that. But opening up that kind of like critically questioning this idea of like this kind of need to necessarily like really closely align ourselves with our research participants. As much as I want to keep going on this topic, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Alex. Thanks, Ronan. Irina. Thank you. And Andy. Thanks. And me, your host, Ronan. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not the strange familiars, which is another fan podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropologists' role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submission at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Moldrow. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.